Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present You're Not the First and You Won't Be the Last, written and performed by Deborah Haywood. Deborah was named as one of the biggest breakout female filmmakers by Harper's Bazaar in 2018 and a Screen International Star of Tomorrow in 2007. Her debut feature film, Pincushion, opened Critics Week at the Venice International Film Festival in 2017 and was nominated for three biffers. Deborah also received a nomination for Breakthrough Filmmaker at the London's Critics Circle Awards. Deborah is currently developing feature scripts with the BFI, Film 4 and BBC Films. This story contains sensitive topics, including the discussion and description of abortion. Listener discretion is advised. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Deborah about the origins of and intentions behind her story, but for now, here she is reading, You're not the first and you won't be the last. I'd heard about him before I met him. Tracy Brown invited me to a bedsit or squat in the rough end of town to hang out one night after school with her boyfriend Paddy and a gang of their mates. He turned up not long before it was time for us to get the last bus home. He had really dark brown hair and blue eyes, the nicest I'd ever seen, and he wore tight, stretched jeans that had been taken in. He hadn't even looked in my direction, so when Tracy ran up to me before class the next morning and said he'd asked for my phone number and said, he really fancies you, my stomach flipped. Really? How old is he? 19, same as Paddy. Nobody had ever asked for my number before. When I got back from school, Mum said, Some lads rang five times. Who is he and what does he want you for? Before I could say anything, the phone rang. I pounced on it. Less than two hours later, I was sat on his bed. He had those nylon sheets, the type that snaggy nails. My dad works on the lorries, so he's out. And my mum works the late shift at the dog food factory. You know what that means, don't you? I shook my head. We're on our own. He grinned at me. Do you want to listen to some records I got from an old jukebox? I nodded. He played Endless Love by Lionel Richie and somebody else. A duet. While we listened to that, he picked another record out. Sweet 16, I'm going to play this to you on your 16th birthday. All I could think was that I wasn't 16 for ages. Did that mean he wanted me to be his long-term girlfriend? I'd be able to write his name on my pencil case, or on my jeans. Maybe he'd even have my name tattooed on his neck. My last girlfriend let me do it to her on the first night. And Vicky Hilton. And Tina Smith. He grinned. Are you a virgin? My face went red. No. He persuaded me to lie on the bed while he pulled my knickers and jeans down. Don't come in me, will you? He grinned and pushed it in. After about five thrusts, he stopped. He got off me and lit up a fag. You didn't come, did you? 
If you're worried next time, you can go on top. You don't get pregnant when you're on top. Gravity, he said. I smiled like I'd like to, but going on top would make me feel really stupid. I wouldn't know how to do it, or what face to pull. He said he'd call me the next night, but even though I didn't play any records in case I didn't hear it, he didn't call. All the next night, all the night after that. Tracy said I should ring him in the daytime so someone would be in. So we went to the school payphone. His mum answered. He's not here. Will you tell him I rang, please? Tracy pulled a face. I bet she's lying, she said. He's on the dole, so he's bound to be in because Neighbours is on. When I got home, my mum shoved the wall calendar in front of me. You're over a week late. Have you got something to tell me? No. Mum had made braising steak with cabbage and mash. I got my plate and walked off before she could say anything else. I took the test in the school toilets. I did a wee and waited. Please, 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 please don't be positive. Diane Smith, who used to live four doors down, got pregnant and had a baby when she was 16. She moved away, but people still talked about her. She was the biggest scandal our street had ever had. A very clear blue circle looked up at me. Positive. What was going to do? Shelley, who sat next to me in RE, was with me. I made a promise not to tell anyone. I heard if you fall down the stairs, you'll lose it, she said. When I got home, I climbed to the top of the stairs and jumped before I could chicken out. I landed on my feet. Tea's ready, Mum shouted from the kitchen. I went and fetched my food and ate it in front of her, like I was normal. Like I wasn't willing myself not to puke it straight back out. The next day I went round school, asking who had their period and would they wear my knickers for a couple of hours and bleed in them, so my mum would think I'd come on. Nobody would do it, but Gillian Brooks told me that her cousin had had an abortion. She gave me the number. She might be able to tell you what to do. I went to the school payphone. Gillian's cousin said her abortion cost £500, but you can get one for free on the NHS if it's your first time or if you're under 16. What's it like? I asked. She lowered her voice so her mum and dad couldn't hear. There's people with banners outside. They sing hymns and pray and try and stop your car from going through the gates. Does it hurt? Not really, but everyone calls you a slag afterwards. I had nearly £100 in my building society account, but my mum had hidden the book. I went into my brother's bedroom... I'm pregnant. I know, it's all round school. I swallowed. I need some money to get rid of it before Mum finds out. Don't look at me, he said. I'm saving for a motorbike. I worked on another plan. If somebody else's mum took me to their doctor and pretended that I was their daughter, I could get permission and have it done for free without my own mum ever finding out. I pleaded with the girls in my form. My mum would tell your mum, Kerry said. Sharon pulled a face. Don't look at me. My mum would try and make you keep it. I turned to Louise. Please. Louise shook her head. No. The next morning before breakfast, I took my dad's Stanley knife from his drawer. 
cut the inside of my mouth, then spat the blood into the gusset of my knickers. Then I put my knickers on top of the laundry basket so my mum would see them. Downstairs, mum gave me a mug of tea. I think we'd better buy a test, she said in that voice. I tried to look wounded. I came on this morning, look in the laundry basket if you don't believe me. God! When I got to school, Louise said she'd told her mum and if it had happened to Louise, she'd definitely want to know. She might be upset, but she'd support her no matter what. I'd rather die than tell my mum, I said. Tracy ran up to me in PE. He's got a new girlfriend, she said. He told Paddy last night. I bet that's why he hasn't rang you. My mouth went fizzy and filled with acid. Did he say anything else? I don't think so, but he definitely knows you're pregnant because Paddy told him. How did he take it? I think he laughed and said, how do you know it's his? My face burned so bad it was still hot when I got home. Mum's face was red too, like she'd been crying. What's up? I asked when I walked in. What's up? The headmistress has been here and said it's all round the school that you're pregnant. That's what's up. She looked like she was being strangled. Is it true? I nodded. She got a tissue. What are you going to do? Maybe we could look after it and bring it up if you don't want to get rid of it. She sounded weak. I shrugged. Could do. She sighed. Let me talk to your dad. I snuck my mum's Freeman's catalogue upstairs with me. Dad maternity dresses and baby stuff. Things like baby baths and mobiles and little baby grows. They had prams and pushchairs too. And this swing thing that he dangled off the door frame. I wondered what he would buy it. Maybe a cot and some cuddly toys or some cute clothes. We don't like girls who get pregnant at this school and we don't like babies. Miss Cooper, the head, a.k.a. ancient dragon breath, stopped me in the corridor. She looked at me over her glasses. Have you heard that song, When the going gets tough, the tough get going? I nodded. Get tough, she boomed, and do the sensible thing. What did Dragon want? Shelley had seen us talking from inside the science block. She told me to get an abortion, I said. When I got home, my mum looked older. I talked to your dad and I've made an appointment at the doctor's for you. It's on Thursday. We'll pick you up from school. Have you thought about what you want to do? I looked at the carpet. I think I want it. I glanced at her for about half a second. She looked sad. The doctor was all smiles. What can I do you for? Mum's nervous rash flared up. She's pregnant, Doctor. The doctor looked at me. I hope you're not going to tell me you want to join the other 5,000 underage sluts who have illegitimate bastards each year. I put my head down. Mum started to cry. The doctor took his glasses off and tossed them across his desk. He uncrossed his legs. I've known your mother for a very long time, since she was at school, and she doesn't deserve this. Wait outside while I talk to her. I stood in the corridor and tried to listen. When the door eventually opened, I went to hug her, but she pushed me away. Get off me. 
followed her down the corridor. What did he say? He's contacting the hospital to book a termination. Nobody spoke on the drive home. When the time came, my dad drove us to the hospital. Don't tell anyone what you're in here for, Mum warned me. Say you're having a DNC, a scrape for heavy periods. A nurse led us into a small women's ward with four beds. She took me to the one in the corner next to the window and handed me a gown. We'll do the procedure this afternoon and you'll stay in overnight seeing as you're under 16. She turned to my mum and dad and smiled. You can go now. Don't forget what I told you, mum whispered. We'll see you in the morning. The woman in the next bed smiled at me. I'm Shirley. I smiled back. Shirley was old, like 30 or 40 or 50. She was a bit flabby with a perm and a nice face. What are you in for? I thought about telling her. A scrape. What about you? Shirley smiled, brave. I'm trying to have a baby. This is my third procedure. Oh, I looked around. The girl opposite Shirley was asleep. That's Carol, bless her. She's been here for a week now. She's got complications. Then she whispered. Mary, across from you there, is having a miscarriage. I looked over at Mary, who was reading a magazine. She was thin and wore a cardigan over a nightie. She didn't look up. I looked back at Shirley. Aren't you too old to have a baby? Shirley's face reddened. No, I'm not too old to have a baby, thank you. Sorry, I said. I didn't mean to upset you. She looked away. My eldest would have been 12 now if she'd made it. Does anybody want to come for a fag? Carol was awake now. I nodded. I followed her down the corridor and into the smoking room. They think I'm here with my ovaries, but I'm pregnant. The smell of her hubba-bubba mixed with nicotine went up my nose and made me gag. They already did an abortion, but I'm still testing positive, so they think it's in my tubes. She lit a cigarette. Before you ask why I talk funny, I'm not from round here. My dad thought it best if I went to a hospital further away, in case somebody recognised me. Because he's a vicar. And I'm only 13 and he might get the sack. Or lose some of his congregation if it got round. She offered me a fag. I took it and dragged on it. My fingers shook. I tried to stop them. Does your dad think you'll go to hell for having an abortion? Carol took her fag back. I was really glad. Dunno, but he probably thinks the man will. What man? She stubbed a fag out in the ashtray. Come on, we best go back. Before I went down to the theatre, a man gave me a little cup of liquid to drink. It'll make you relax. I drank it and lay back down. After he'd gone, I looked over at Shirley. Does anyone ever not wake up after they've had anaesthetic? I asked. She didn't reply. She wasn't looking at me, but I could tell she hated me. When I woke up, I thought about hell. Would I go there, or would God think it was just a cluster of cells like what my dad said? Shirley was in her bedside chair, filing her nails. I sat up and turned to her. 
Can I borrow 20p for the phone, please? She pretended not to hear me. Sorry about before, about what I said. Shirley ignored me. Mary got her purse out. Here. I shuffled over and fetched it. I felt dizzy. Thank you. I'll pay you back when my mum gets here. I waddled down the hospital corridor to the payphone. It was hard to walk normally with what felt like a mattress in my knickers. I felt weird and fuzzy. My wound was like a big lead weight pulling down on me and I could feel blood trickling out of me. I dialed his number. Even though it was weeks now since I stopped calling, I knew it off by heart. Hello? Hello? He put the phone down. I rang back quick in case he hadn't meant to put it down or before he went out. It was engaged or off the hook. I didn't look at Shirley when I got back to the ward. I just walked straight past her and climbed onto my bed and lay there. I had a termination and you can't have a baby. I looked at her. Shirley smiled even though she looked sad. I guessed, she said. I looked back at the ceiling. Where do all the dead babies go? Their souls, I mean. Shirley was quiet. It's probably best we don't think about it. I started to cry. It came out even though I didn't want it to. Shirley got up off her chair and came to me. She put her arms around me. You're not the first, she said, and you won't be the last. About an hour later, my mum and dad came to fetch me. Let's get you home, mum said. I followed them down the corridor. My stomach felt like it had been stamped on from the inside. I wanted it to. How'd you feel? Mum asked. Okay, thanks. I'll do your hot water bottle when we get home, Mum said. Thanks. I pushed my luck. Has anybody rang while I've been gone? No. And I don't think they're going to. Do you? We walked a couple of steps further. No, I said. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for joining me and thank you for sharing your story with Never Told. I'd like to start off, I guess, in the area of like the provocation, because all of our writers that are contributing a story were given the same one, but they've all taken it in different directions. So I'd love to get a sense from you what your initial response to that idea of telling something that you'd never told before was and how you arrived at telling this particular story. I got really excited when you told me, you know, this was the brief and I was like, oh, juicy, because I love, you know, secrets or things that have never been told. I think at first I started thinking, oh, I'd like to create a character and tell something connected with something that I was writing about or, you know, that could enrich it or maybe be used for, you know, as a kind of calling card for another project or something like that. And then I started thinking about things that I hadn't, you know, told about my own story or my own life and I don't know and then I think it just it came to me what I hadn't told before and I thought you know what I haven't told that was so painful when I had a termination when I was 15 that people that I've known all all my life you know I don't tell anyone and because it's just so painful and then I thought you know what I think why should it be so painful um it was traumatic um but I have had therapy um, a couple of times and learnt about 
you know, how I was a child myself and, um, you know, maybe I wasn't, it wasn't all my fault and I was all to blame and all the rest of it is more complex than that. It's something that I quite wanted to explore and take a look at as a story with a bit of an arc. And um, but also I, it's just something that I thought I could tell authentically. And I think as writers and when we're listening to a story or reading a story, I think that's the thing that we, we makes us feel something, isn't it? If you can feel the authenticity of it or the truth of it or the pain or the, you know, the humour of it or whatever. So I just thought, oh, I'm just going to have a go because if there's one person out there who, you know, also has suffered like I have and did and, you know, I still still even sometimes think, you know, what, what if I'm going to hell? You know, is it is it murder and will I get judged in some other life or realm or and you know where is this baby or these cells or whatever this soul and you know am I ever going to come face to face with them and what are they going to think of me and you know all all these it's still you know something that I still sometimes in the dead of the night it starts building and I thought if somebody else has had that kind of pain it's I don't know it might be interesting to share it and to hear it. I'm wondering what it was specifically that gave you the language or the tools to be able to articulate it now. Do you think it was therapy? Do you think it was distance? You know, how were you able to approach writing this story that was so incredibly painful and close to you? I think um, I think I saw that. Did you see that film? Um, never, never, um, rarely, sometimes, yes, always. Yeah, I saw that, and that transformed me back to that time of my own experience. And I just thought how beautiful that film was and how simple but really effective and really, you know, went through to your bones. And um, so I think, it, I think it was that that inspired me, really, how to, you know, to tell it in a non-dramatic way, but also to examine the shame about it. Yeah, inspired by that, but also obviously inspired by my own experience. Yeah, I think simple but effective is so right because there's a real matter-of-factness to the tone. Mm. As you say, you're not kind of grandiose and it's not histrionic. There's yeah. a real directness and emotional clarity. And I'm wondering if that was just like instinctual and that was the only way that you felt like this story could be told or if you flirted with kind of other versions or you tried out other voices to see if that would work better or, you know, if that felt more true. Uh, no, I didn't, actually. I think the voice came to me and it almost wrote itself in a way I think the voice was it was always there and I think actually I don't know I think I was driving and it just came to me in that voice and I was like oh yeah that's that's what I want to do it came fully formed I think that's often the way there were stories that we've been sitting on for a while mm. or have been percolating within us is that we kind of we don't know that our body is almost writing it for us and yes. then we get to the page and we're like we kind of purge ourselves mm. of it. Mm. And because it was so vivid, that experience, and, you know, it took me so long to get over. And because, you know, everyone knew. And it's that time when you're a teenager that everything seems bigger than it is. Mm. So it was, you know, it was it was really huge to me at the time and, and like, destroyed me for a, a, a while. 
I'm wondering as well, though, whether any particular parts that were difficult to articulate or characters whose voice it was difficult to kind of get a hold on. As There are so many kind of characters and voices that are flitting in and out, particularly when we get to the hospital and there are all these women that are kind of going through something similar, but they're uh, processing it in different ways and they're experiencing it in different ways. How did you bring nuance to that experience? By slowing down and thinking through little bits and and the emotions i think the emotions were a good guide for me normally when you remember something you kind of remember the headlines and the highlights and maybe the feeling and then you get that feeling you push it away because you're like oh no i don't want to think about that so i think it was um i was sitting in the feeling and actually, I've just been reading that Sarah Polly book, Run Towards the Danger. Oh, it's about her running towards the danger rather than running away from it. And mm-hmm. I think, actually, that's that's what I was doing, is, like, looking at it and examining it and, you know, like, breaking it down and going through it very, very slowly rather than thinking, oh, this is what it was and this, you know, like, get out of the way. I think what I loved about it was how they're all experiencing some aspect of fear. And I feel like you represent that so well in the sense that they can be quick to judge or they can be sharp with each other or they can be a bit unkind but then there's also a tenderness because they understand what each of them are going through I feel like there are just all these like layers of things that are happening um that's definitely my favorite scene what was the experience of reading it aloud like you know given that this is for a podcast I absolutely shit myself all day I've been thinking, how can I get out of it? You know, can I break my leg or <laughs> shall I say, you know, my cat got run over or... But also I kind of wanted to do it because I I thought that, you know, at first like somebody else would be reading it, which was great. But then I suppose if I'm reading it, I know the intentions behind the words. But also it's really kind of hard to read something and get the, you know, convey the meaning as well. So... Um, Yeah, it was an interesting experience. But you ran towards the danger, and I'm glad you did. (laughs) I'm also wondering how this story kind of intersects with other stories that you're interested in telling, other worlds, characters, environments. Kind of, You said that initially you thought you might borrow a character from something that you'd already done and expand on it, but this felt quite different. So does it fit into other worlds that you're already dabbling in? Yes and no. I think it does, as in it's a working-class world, and I've got my background is working class so I know that you know I know the shorthand I know the dialogue I know you know the lens of that and I think I do write through that lens quite a bit so in that way yes but also I think as in it's prose I'm not writing anything else that's prose and I really enjoyed writing prose but I don't know I think it I think I am drawn to like dark things and a bit taboo um but hopefully with you know a little bit of humor in here you know, trickled around it. So I think that kind of tone is probably very me. This episode of Never Told was produced by me, Nicole Davis. Our executive producer is Sarah Brocklehurst. Our production assistant and assistant story editor is Amy Yeo. Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Bette Norris. That's our show for today, and we'll be returning next week with a brand new story from Thaddea Graham. Listen to Never Told on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.